This is part four of the series, Through the Eyes of a Child. After a year in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, Maurice and his family were put on a train with no idea of their destination. Now, part four, Train to Nowhere. How did you come to leave Bergen-Belsen? What, what happened? Well, the uh, armies of the Allies, British and United States, were marching towards Bergen-Belsen. Uh, that's in uh, April of 1945. As they approached, the uh, Germans decided that they would try and uh, take the high-value prisoners and take them further west into Germany, thinking that uh, they could still use them as hostages, basically, mm -hmm. to uh, get some favors from uh, whoever it was that valued those prisoners. Again, we're moving uh, within a week of my birthday. <laughs> yeah, very, a lot of things happen in April. That's right. Very, uh, very strange. But so what were you told? We were told very little, actually nothing. We didn't know where we were going. One possibility was that we were heading towards Spain and Portugal, but of course we didn't know that the Allies were really closing in to within you know, a few weeks of where we were, so that the idea that we could go to Spain at that time uh, obviously was totally impractical because uh, Germany was already surrounded. How, how did all of that unfold? They came in one day, told us to pack up and walk to the railroad siding two miles away and uh, get on a train. And that was it. We didn't get any any knowledge of what the plan was. So you, you follow the, these instructions? Right. And how big was the train? Well, the train, in fact, the, the Greek Jews were a very small part of the train because there were about 2,400 people on the train. and it was 2,400? That's a lot of people. That's right. It was a very long train. It had, uh, I think, if I remember right, it had uh, two engines. Well, one of the things one might wonder is, here is Germany barely hanging in there with the uh, Allied armies coming down, and they would allocate a train with two engines to carry 2,400 Jews someplace else. It doesn't make any sense today, but in those days, who knows what their uh, reasoning was for, for that. They didn't want us to be uh, liberated in uh, Bergen-Belsen, uh, basically, which was very good, because if we had stayed in Bergen-Belsen, then uh, there would have been a, a good possibility for, for us to die from the typhoid epidemic mm. that, that uh, occurred there after we left. Were the was the train uh, like a cattle car, was it? Well, this train, it was a combination. There was a, a court, actual coach and uh, end cattle car. And we were very lucky that we ended up in the coach wagons. So those had seats, you mean? They had seats. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the same thing, like they have compartments. Mm-hmm 
where you can get on a compartment from the outside uh, of the car. Oh, and all. so there's a door that leads to the outside. Right, and also a corridor inside, mm -hmm. you know, where you can move from compartment to compartment. Everything was packed, basically, but uh, so it must have been at least a few other people in that compartment. So at least they had a lot of cattle cars as well, and that's where, the, as it turns out, the Polish prisoners and some of the Hungarians, there were groups were transported in those uh, cattle cars. We got in the train, and uh, that was it, basically, not knowing what was going on. And you didn't know where you were going. That, that's right. The trip, what did you do about food? We would uh, occasionally stop and be given some food, like turnips became very popular. It was very sparse food. We didn't get much food. We, we got some, and they would uh, distribute food. Uh, occasionally we would stop, and they put out some uh, potato soups or th things like that. But it was not anything that you could count on. And the fact is that in those days, April 1945, the Germans were also starving because of lack of food. So it was a difficult situation for everybody. Do you remember any particular stories about your journey on this train? Basically, the train, as far as we can tell, in, in retrospect, they were trying to get to Theresienstadt, which is a model concentration camp. Just explain so people understand, what do you mean a model concentration camp? They built that earlier in uh, the 40s where they had some very benign uh, environment with uh, housing and things like that. And that's where they brought the uh, Red Cross. Whenever there were complaints, they brought them there to show them how they treated the Jews. As far as we can tell, that that was our destination. I see. But uh, we didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. But historically, it turns out that this is the most likely destination because we were going in that direction anyway. I mean, we were... The Elbe River is the, the river where the uh, agreement between the Allied forces and the Russians... It was the river where the two armies were going to meet each other and each one of them was to stay on their side of the river. It goes north-south so that uh, the uh, Americans were on the um, west side of the river and the Russians were on the east side of the river. They had to cross that river in order to get to Czechoslovakia. The train. The train had to cross it. And, and Theresienstadt was in, in, Czechoslovakia. in Czechoslovakia. Okay. They could not. They could not do it. Actually, the, most of the time was uh, moving back and forth. It for for like six days. It had gone close to the Alb River, then back to where we started. And really, you mean you mean you would? It 
Was it going in an east-west direction? That's right. It's going in an east-west direction, and it would get close to the river, and then it would literally go backwards. Then they would go back because they couldn't find, they couldn't get across. I see. And then they would go back again and forward and back. How many days did this go on for? Uh, I think six days. Mm-hmm. And you must have been wondering, what did people think who were aboard the train? They're going in one direction, then they go in another. That's right, but uh, I, I'm not sure that we knew enough about the geography to know which directions we were moving. Yeah. But as it turns out, I have the actual train schedule, if you believe, that tells you <clears throat> which, uh, where the train was at any given time. So you can map... Yes. The actual path of the train I now is, I mean, yes. in retrospect. In retrospect, yes. Yeah. So all you knew when you were aboard the train, you didn't know the destination, and no. you were just going back and back forth. Back and forth, yeah. And so what? how did it culminate? Well, the thing is that we were within range. The American army was not that far west of us. And the Americans were on the same side. On the same side. What uh, would happen is, um, uh, what I remember vividly is one night as we travel at night, because during the day, if they travel, try to travel during the day, then there would be American uh, fighter bombers overhead that sometimes, uh, as a matter of fact, in one stop, they strafed the train until some people came out and the pilot realized that it was a train that had uh, that was full of uh, prisoners, basically, and they stopped doing it. But they, By they, strafed, you mean bombed? Not, I mean, uh, shot at, shot at. Shot at, yeah, mm-hmm. with uh, machine guns. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember that we had to hide under the, the, the train cars in order to uh, avoid getting killed. During the day, the train would be... Mostly stopped, yes. Were you able to get out of the train? Yes, we were. And uh, we'd we'd work out and uh, try to cook some food or whatever was available. Probably more turnips. More turnips, yes. Do you eat turnips today? I have not touched a turnip (laughs) for years. (laughs) One night, we went through a uh, medium-sized German town where there was a railroad station. While we were going through, the, the railroad station had just been bombed a minute or two earlier, and it was in flames. So the train would run through this station that was burning up, and, uh, you know, we would look outside the window and it would see amazing spectacle of uh, the bombed-out station. And what were you thinking as a, as a 10-year-old looking out at this? Well, I, there was nothing much new to think because when we were still in Bergen-Belsen, we had the American uh, Air Force were sending in hundreds of bombers overhead. You could sit there and watch the sky. You can see from horizon to horizon there were planes coming and coming and coming, bombers, and uh, they were out there bombing different cities. From the camp, you could see them flying overhead. That's right. It sounds like the sky was thick. That's right. And and, U.S. bombers. And how did that make you feel? Very well. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) 
were there cheers? And, oh, of course there were cheers. And what? at what point did you start to see these bombers during your one-year stay at Bergen-Belsen? We seen them a few months. So you knew that people there was, were fighting uh, for you. Or there, we knew there was uh, they were coming. So let's get back to the train. So you go through areas that are being bombed. What about the tr- stealing of a turnip? There's some story. Oh yeah, the, we at one time we were uh, stopped at the railroad station. While we were sitting there on the platform, I noticed that two platforms down, there were a whole pile of turnips sitting there. So there was nothing, there was nobody around. And I this mean, is Germans. during the day, right? That's during the day. Yeah. I didn't see, see any Germans around. So I ran down one track and up the next platform and down the next track and grabbed a turnip to the platform I see a pair of boots from under the platform. I'm just looking up was a, a German officer sitting on the platform. I, I probably was very cute for some reason, I guess. Yeah, I bet you were cute. Because he started smiling. He gave me a hand up, and then he, he took the turnip away, but then told me to go back to my parents and then as I was moving out he turned around and gave me the turnip back. Wow. What did you make of that? Luck. I mean to have uh, this particular guy that was not an SS type. It was a Wehrmacht type. Did he, was he armed? Yeah, the officers carry sidearms. So that was a memorable adventure. I bet. Did it surprise you? As I say again, nothing surprised yes. me. Yes. That was it. Yeah. What finally culminated with the train? You're, you've been on the train for six days now, stopping during the day. And it, you were attacked by some Allied planes, um, but, yeah. but then they realized that there were... Uh, that there were prisoners, and I guess the word spread that this train had prisoners and not to bomb the train, right? Not to... Right. Okay, so six days, then what? Well, then that's when we uh, ended up one uh, stopping in a hollow that was uh, sort of hides the train. The hollow was where the train stopped. That was Farsleben. Farsleben, okay. That's that was the city of Farsleben, and that's very close. It was within a few kilometers of the uh, Elbe River. I just want to put this into context for the listeners. The Nazis made attempts to evacuate the concentration camps before the Allied troops arrived. The train carrying Maurice and his family was traveling eastward towards the Elbe River. The German army informed the train that it wouldn't be good to proceed further east because the Russian army was rapidly advancing. The train then reversed direction, where they were then told that they were headed into the advancing American army in the opposite direction. So the train stopped in this German town called Farsleben. We were very lucky again 
that the train never made it across because if it had, we would have been liberated by the Russians rather than by the Americans. Yes. And so it, it was close again. I mean, there was a lot of great luck all over the place. The train is stopped in this very narrow space right. during the day. Right. And was it Well, it's, it, stayed, it? it stayed for a day and then were ready to move because they were going to try again to get across the Alb River. That's, that's our opinion anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, I was, I, and I remember that scene very well because the, the train started moving very slowly out of the hollow and as soon as part of the train was outside the hollow, a, uh, an American fighter bomber started stra- strafing the engine. The engine? Yeah. Okay. So the, the Germans then backed the train back into the hollow again. Mm-hmm. To protect the train. To protect the train. And then they had an inspiration of what they did is they un- uncoupled the engine and moved it about... Oh, they moved the engine. Okay, okay. About 500... 500 feet from the train. From the train, maybe a little more. And uh, then they got off, they stopped the engine, got off, and ran like hell. Because the, the plane had made another run, and it rocketed the engine through a, a rocket on the engine uh it didn't look like it would do any damage but i mean because the engine is all you know heavy material mm-hmm. and those rockets were not uh really that big mm-hmm. but it did incapacitate it so the engine was sitting there smoking and the the funny thing is that the people in the back of the train that was almost a mile long and it was going around a curve, didn't see any of that. They were looking at the engine smoking, you know, or and, and they were wondering what was keeping them from moving. There are a lot of different stories about what happened at that time, and most of those stories are from the Polish people that were on the other end of the train. But you knew. I knew. We were right at the beginning. At the, at the, right at the front. At the front of the train. So you knew that the Allies had bombed the, the, the engine. engine. And, and so what happened, there were Germans, obviously, you, as you said, they ran like hell. They let, What about the Germans who were on the train itself? By the end of the day, they also... I think they some of them put on civilian clothes, and uh, they everybody left the train, so we were all by ourselves. What what I remember is that uh, some of the young people on the train had gone in and broken into the German cars. I don't remember if they found any weapons or not, but somehow I remember that I was looking for something. <laughs> For some kind of weapon. Some kind of a weapon. Mm-hmm. You were 10. I was 10, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you find one? I'm still not sure, but I think I found a flare gun. Uh-huh. <laughs> so was there kind of chaos among the prisoners at this point? What, what, what was the sort of environment? Well, it was not chaos. There's nothing. We, nobody went anywhere. I mean, everybody was sitting around the train waiting to see 
what would happen. We didn't, I mean, the Germans had left, but we didn't know whether they were coming back or, uh, yes. you know, or uh, there were others coming or replacements. You had no idea. No idea, so we just sat there. So after the bombing, how long, what, what happened next? That same day, there was a, a group of people that uh, went out trying to determine what was going on. The, some of the prisoners. Some of the prisoners, mm -hmm. yes. So eventually, that group came back riding an American tank. <laughs> that tank was a patrol tank from a uh, division that was operating very close to where we were. How many prisoners came back riding the tank? Well, maybe, I don't know, a dozen or less. Mm -hmm. So that what was... What happened? There was jubilation. Oh. Well, I mean, it was, say the least. Oh. We were finally liberated. And they sent some more. As a matter of fact, he was not on the tank. There were two people on the tank that had been identified. And At U.S. soldiers. U.S. soldiers, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, they're both dead. But, I mean, they lived, uh, you know, people that were in their 20s in those days lived until their 90s, basically. Yes. Once the tank arrived with the two American soldiers and the 10 or so prisoners, how long did it take for other U.S. troops to arrive? They sent in uh, another tank, I think, with some people with order orders to guard the train and they stayed i think overnight the prisoners did they get out of the train yeah they were in and out of the train i mean uh, all our staff was on the train so uh, we weren't going anywhere they uh, they send uh, in a day or so they send army trucks to take us off and take us to healersleben which was only about 10 kilometers away or something like that Mm -hmm. Over there, they installed us in housing that was part of a Luftwaffe hmm. base. Mm -hmm. It was empty. And we're talking about 2,500 prisoners now. That's right. So they had that, to, That's a big operation. To, that was a hell of a big operation, yes. So it was amazing how they did that. And then they had uh, assigned a uh, medical battalion to take care of us because we couldn't eat right away. Yeah, some people did and, uh, and actually died because of the... They had to bring us back very slowly. That's why it took us like three weeks before we were ready to travel again. With so little food, is it tempting? Was it tempting to eat a lot? I've always wondered about that. I can say yes and no, depend on uh, how how you felt about it. But uh, we knew instinctively that we just couldn't go out there and start eating indiscriminately. Yeah. So you were there for three weeks and then they moved you to Paris? Then they put, them on, put us on a train. And this is the thing is that in those days, there was no public transport. Anybody that moved anywhere had to be scheduled by an army transport. It was always a, an army transport. So the train was assigned to pick us up mm -hmm. and take us to Paris. You made a few more stops um, in Toulon and to in to Bari, 
Italy. You were in there for three weeks, and then you arrive September 15th, 1945, back in Greece. Right. As a matter of fact, the sad thing was that the first thing we heard from the soldiers was that Roosevelt had died. Well, he died the day before. Yes. People were very, because people were, must have been so grateful for what the United States did. Absolutely. So when you arrived back in Greece in September of 1945, what did you find? To begin with, our apartment had been taken over by the building owner and rented again. In the meantime, we could stay at one of the houses that uh, father and his brother owned. There's a third brother that was uh, was there, never left Athens. Was he, he was able to hide during the occupation. Mm-hmm. We went to court, and it happens that all legal transactions that were taking that took place during the German occupation were nullified. Mm-hmm. And so, your father, you mentioned your father had property. Right. So, uh, but we moved, we moved back. We had a very large apartment, so what the compromise was to divide it into two apartments, and we moved back to the larger part of that of the apartment we used to have. And uh, so we stayed there until we left uh, Greece, basically. When did you leave Greece? In uh, March of 1951. And you were how old? 16. When you were 16, all four of you. That's right. And where did you go? Well, we have our sponsors were in San Antonio, Texas. What made you leave Greece at that point? What made us leave Greece was the fact that uh, the occupation, there was a civil war in Greece between the communists and the right-wing government that uh, ended up in uh, 1949. And uh, after that, the country was absolutely ruined, completely and flatly. There was nothing. And father decided that, you know, he wanted to start up his business, but there was no market. And so, as it turns out, we, uh, we were eligible under the Truman Doctrine to immigrate as displaced persons. Okay. Tell us about what happened when you, after you arrived in the United States. Well, we were uh, placed in, uh, you know, in an apartment or a house, and uh, we were supported by the local community, the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. You were, and you entered school at that point. That's right. And uh, But the fact is that I was going to the American school in Athens, uh, starting after we got back from the concentration camp. Oh, so from 1945 to 1951, you were in the American school. Were you speaking I, English? I, that's right. You were speaking English. So that was not a problem for you to... Well, it was um, a problem in the sense that I was 14 when I started. It was 15, 16. So I was there for three years. Uh-huh. And every year you get a bigger vocabulary. 
but I I was not into a. I was able to speak, but not fluently. Yes. And uh, uh, but enough to uh, to understand, you know, what was being talked, and I was able to communicate. In other words, in English. You entered what grade? Well, we came in in, in uh, March, so I joined the uh, I guess tenth grade, and and actually graduated that grade by only going there for three months. In the high school in Texas, there was uh, 500 seniors in my high school, and I ended up fifth in my class. And the reason I ended up fifth is because my first three months in school, I took, I got a, a C in English. Oh. And that was the only C I ever got. Wow. So you ended up going to Princeton and studying physics, major, particularly at that time, a major powerhouse of oh, yes. well-known physicists who were oh, there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, Einstein was still alive then when I was there. I want to fast forward for a minute because we've talked about the train that was liberated at the end and how that train, because of the 2,500 prisoners who were liberated, has become a very, a a well-known story. That's right. Actually, the train story had become uh, very well known on the internet uh, because of uh, research that had occurred by some school up in Hudson Valley. Maurice is referring to Hudson Valley High School, where history teacher Matthew Roselle began teaching about the Holocaust, ultimately publishing his research on the internet and culminating in a book called A Train Near Magneburg. Maurice began to do extensive research based on Roselle's work, and as a result, wound up attending the 20th anniversary of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. in April of 2013. At that time, there was only one survivor which was not a member of the tank group that liberated the train, but was, in fact, the man that was assigned to coordinate all the uh, management of the people that were on the train. I ended up going there. Going so, going to Washington. Going to for, Washington. For this big event. For yes. this big event, and uh, I met the man that was um, uh, actually the uh, secretary of the 30th Division, that is a, a celebrated World War II division of the Army. was very glad I did that, and I ended up having a picture taken with him. You didn't actually meet each other at the time that the train was liberated? No. But uh, you did, you were able to meet. And how did you feel about that connection? Oh, I, uh, unreal. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, to, to see, to, to get together with the men where the two of you were together 
in uh, April of 1945. It's extremely, it was very touching, I would say, at least. How did he feel? What, what did he say to you, the liberator? He felt very, very taken by the fact that uh, he could meet people that he had liberated. And uh, it was uh, quite an experience. Do you think it could ever happen again? How do you process that now, looking back? Well, it happened to a Europe that was supposed to be a civilized place. And uh, to think that it could never happen again, I think it's not realistic. It could. And it has happened again in uh, other situations with uh, brutality. Mm -hmm. Trying to make sure that it doesn't happen again is certainly a very, very good goal to have uh, as a society. Do you think most people are innately good? I don't know. I think people are innately anything, good and bad and uh, indifferent. Maurice has what I would call a practical, realistic view of human nature. And maybe this is because he has seen the worst and the best of humanity. <laughs>